Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Second Take Cinema coming to you from the Spaceship Impala in the galactic South End on Sea. Today, we're actually recording this on New Year's Eve, just a little inside baseball here. We're recording this on New Year's Eve, so we've had a couple of drinks. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going Star Trekking across the universe. We are going Star Trekking across the universe. On the Starship Enterprise, here with Captain Kirk. Under Captain Kirk, isn't it? I think, uh, to be honest, I've listened to that song. have been under Captain Kirk. That's right. Today, we are giving a second take to 1979's Star Trek The Motion Picture. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Today we are talking about Star Trek, not the movie, not the film, not the TV special. This is Star Trek, the motion picture. Should we smell s- the pretension? Yeah. Shall we start? Smell with, it. Shall we start with that? Just to say, like, obviously, part of the idea of this, the, we're going to talk about its pace and everything as we get into it. But this, it's renowned, like, it's infamously, a very slow-paced film. Uh, to put it mildly, let's put it that way. Um, and part of that was to make it seem big, grandiose, larger than life. Because, as you say, of the pretension of the fact that this isn't just a film, disgusting, cheap-ass film for children, this is a motion picture. Anyway, this film was directed by Robert Weiss, who, uh, wow, this guy only died in 2005. He lived a long, whole life. He was 91 when he died. Wow. Uh, most well-known for being the Oscar-winning director of West Side Story and The Sound of Music, as well as being nominated for Best Film Editor for editing Citizen Kane. Oh, wow. This is a man who should understand pacing. Yeah, so it, <laughs> that, that, is, that is fascinating considering mm. the problems that this film has. Very career. Anyway, uh, so as I said, directed by Robert Wise from a story by Alan Dean Foster, based obviously on the original series of Star Trek by Gene Roddenberry, starring William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, George Takei, Marjorie Barrett, Walter Koenig, Nichelle Nichols. This film came out in 1979, released December 7th. It was a Christmas movie. Ooh. 1979, with a budget of $44 million, it raked in a hundred and and $39 million. So it success was, in that regard. It was the fifth highest grossing film of 1979, can you believe it? Considering it's considered as something of a flop, that's surprising. Yeah, must have been a bad year for film. We'll talk about that later. Mm. Let's look at the reception, however. The film beat the three-day weekend record previously set the f- year before by Superman, wow. the Christopher Reeve one. Uh, People he- liked Star Trek. Yeah. And it beat the opening re-release, not the original release, the re-release of Star Wars. Yeah. They did a re-release of Star Wars that year, I think. Right. It's because they'd seen it before is the only reason it beat Star yeah. Wars. Uh, yeah. if, if it was the new Star Wars, Star Wars would have floored it, to yeah. be quite frank. It's uh, like nowadays, it's, it's interesting that it beat the record of Superman, because nowadays, like, and we, we have that comparison, something like Man of Steel versus, I don't know, Star Trek Beyond. Yeah. You're like, Superman will crush it because it's a bigger brand. But back then... Star Trek's time will come again. Yeah, but at that time, obviously, Star Trek, I think, was a slightly bigger brand because there was still pretension against comic books. Uh, The motion picture was nominated for three Academy Awards. Best Art Direction, didn't deserve it, we'll get to that. Best Visual Effects, possibly did deserve that one. And Best Original Score, yeah, you can make an argument for that as well. Jerry Goldsmith, hell yeah. In the United States, the film sold the most tickets of any film in the Star Trek franchise until it was beaten by the 2009 Star Trek. Interesting. 
um, and remained the hi- and it remains the highest grossing film of the franchise worldwide when adjusted for inflation. But Paramount considered its gross disappointing compared to their expectations and marketing. Its production budget at the time was the largest of any film made in the United States at that point. Yeah, I remember that. That's insane. Yeah. And that's why, because it was this is the motion picture. It, that's why they gave it that gravitas. This is bigger than just a conventional film. Mm. Because, Star, to be fair, Star Trek obviously died a death on TV. Came back for a very short run, two season long animated series, which no one really gives two tosses I don't think about. most people even consider it canon, do they really? Mm. It, it's kind of slipped in and out of canon depending on time frame. But either way... Um, nobody remem- Nobody sits there and goes, oh, do you remember TAS, like the animated series? No, they don't. Yeah. They remember the original series if they're going to remember anything from that era. Yeah. But the reason that that came about at all, and this movie and the second reboot, was A, Star Wars, to be fair. Yeah. Star Wars revived the sci-fi genre completely. But B, um, because there was, it was after, obviously after the series had already died, it was during the 70s that the fan conventions came up. Suddenly, there was a lot of money in merchandising that wasn't yeah. fully available before. Oh, yeah. Uh, in terms of reception, the film currently holds a 52% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Roger Ebert reviewed the film, and he liked it, calling it fun and a good time. Judith Martin of the Washington Post felt that the plot was too thin to support the length of the film, although she felt that compared to such sci-fi films as 2001, Star Wars, and Alien, the motion picture's premise was, quote, slightly cleverer. It is a relatively smart film when it gets going, but Mm. my God, does it take forever to get going. Uh, David Demby of New York Magazine wrote that the slow movement of ships through space was no longer surprising in elements and elegant after films such as 2001, and that much of the action consisted of the crews reacting to things occurring on the view screen, which he considered to be like watching someone else watch television. Well, that's hilarious, considering that one of the most successful TV shows in Britain at the minute is Gogglebox, where you literally do that. And there's a lot of stuff on YouTube where where it's watch me react videos, and they just watch watch something go <laughs> guys that's oh, so funny the most watched video on impala's youtube channel is me reacting to the welcome to raccoon city trailer that's insane yeah 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 i know none of our actual creative content <laughs> variety disagreed calling the film a search and destroy thriller that includes all of what? the yeah yeah what the fuck yeah, are yeah. they watching that includes all the ingredients that the tv shows fans thrive on philosophical dilemma wrapped in a scenario of mind control, troubles with the spaceship, the dependable and understanding Kirk, the ever-logical Spock, and suspenseful take with a twist ending. Scott Bukartman, he said, with Star Trek, Roddenberry's trick has been to wear the mask of the humanist as he plays with his erector set. What? The scale of the television series arrested his vision at a comfortable and still interesting level, but the new film has removed this mask. Uh, Characters and acting had a mixed reception. Stephen Godfrey of the Globe and Mail rated the performances highly. Time has cemented Leonard Nimoy's look of inscrutability as Mr. Spock, DeForest Kelly as Dr. McCoy is as feisty as ever, and James Doohan as Scotty still splutters about his engineering woes. At a basic level, their exchanges are those of an odd assortment of grumpy, middle-aged men bickering about office politics. They're a relief from the stars and a delight. Godfrey's only concern was that the reunion of the old cast threatened to make casual viewers who had never seen Star Trek feel like uninvited guests. Martin considered the characters more likeable than those incomparable science fiction films. Conversely, Arnold felt that the acting of the main cast, Shatner in particular, was poor, saying Shatner portrays Kirk as such a super... Fucking hell. Whew, this is a big word for a man who's drunk half a bottle of whiskey. Shatner portrays Kirk as such a supercilious old twit that one rather wishes he'd been left behind the desk. He wrote, Shatner has perhaps the least impressive... Mo- oh, this is mean. No, this, this is mean. This person's just being th- mean. Th- this is being mean. Shatner's Shatner not has- that bad in this no, film. No, and this is uncalled because they're about to comment on his appearance. Oh. Shatner has perhaps the least impressive mov- movie physique since Rod Steiger and his acting style has begun to recall the worst of Richard Burton. Wasn't John Belushi famous at this point? No, he's the eighties. Maybe, uh, maybe late seventies. Actually, you I was might be say, right. I'm fairly certain Blues Brothers is like seventy nine. Maybe. Or is it not eighties Blue Brothers? I'll, I'll double check that. You carry on. James 
Berardinelli, reviewing the film in 1996, felt that the pace dragged and the plot bore too close of a resemblance to the original series episode, The Changeling, but considered the yeah. start and end of the film to be strong. Terry Lee Rue, Kelly's biographer, noted that the film provide, proved that it was the character-driven play that made all the difference in Star Trek. So John Belushi was already in National Lampoon's Animal House at this point, 1978. Okay. So, like, you can I mean, I suppose he wasn't meant to be a charismatic, like, he chiseled hero, the way that Kirk is. But oh. at the same time, like, it's, to have a go about someone's physique, but you've nah. got people like that, John Candy, etc. And, and he's again, in pretty good shape in this, Kirk. He ain't all that bad, is Also, he? listen to this. This is just mean. Um, <laughs> the slow pacing, extended uh, reaction shots, and lack of action scenes led some fans and critics to give the film a variety of nicknames, including Star Trek The Slow Motion Picture. Yep. Star Trek The Motion Sickness and Where Nomad, which is the probe from The Changeling, yeah. has gone before. Yes. Um, bit I've mean. also heard the motionless picture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if it was the slow motion picture, Zack Snyder would have loved it. Ugh. Anyway... We're about to talk about this. As you all know, this is a big franchise for Rory, near and dear to his heart. But before we strap on our seatbelts, set our phasers to stun, that's something. No one set a phaser to stun in this. In fact, no one said the word phaser at all. No, I don't used think. a phaser. Yeah, unacceptable. Anyway, before <laughs> we do all that, it's time for this episode's edition of Let's Quiz Rory. So, Star Trek The Motion Picture was the fifth highest grossing movie of 1979. Yeah. Let's name the top ten highest grossing films of 1979. Well, Rory Jocelyn, you've been bamboozled. Number ten. What do you think was the tenth highest grossing movie to come out in 1979? Oh, I wish I knew more about 1979. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. Much like Star Trek, this was a movie based on a TV show. It's not a Muppets movie, is it? It's the Muppet movie. Right. Right, so the Muppet movie was the 10th highest grossing film of 1979, making $65,200,000. It's not bad. Up next, in number nine, it is another entry in a long-running franchise. Three of the movies in the top ten that year is set in space. I'm not going to guess it. No, I'm afraid the correct answer is Moonraker. Oh, the Bond. James Bond movie, oh, Jesus which Christ. made seventy million three hundred and eight thousand and shit film ninety nine dollars. <laughs> it is a shit film as well. Up next, we've got a comedy this time with an actor who um, he's still around. He's not as big as he once was. He's known for a TV show at the moment that is I've never seen it, but it's very well received. Right, uh, yeah. but he was a big comedy actor in the seventies and eighties. Right. Very popular. Big comedian of his time. Yeah. He's the, still maybe in stuff now. The main comedian who's in it also helped write the script. And it was directed by Carl Rayner. If I can go with... No, you know what? I'm going to fucking throw out a guess. John Belushi and the Blues Brothers. I'm afraid not. It is Steve Martin in The Jerk. I've never seen The Jerk. No. Also, quick thing. I've just noticed here that the highest grossing film is different in the UK. In the UK, it was Superman. Okay, number seven, I don't think you're going to get, to be honest, because I had never heard of this film in my life. It's a bit of a forgotten film, and I was surprised when I saw that it actually... in the top ten. You, yeah, yeah, I was surprised when I saw it's got largely a positive following in the reception. Right. All I can give you is that the title is a numeral. Pie. Pick a number. It is a pick a number, isn't it? And it's it? another comedy, if that helps. I'm just going to throw... I have no idea what... Because it's not in the number 47 or anything like that. That was way too late. So... Well, what's hilarious is every other film on this list is a film that I would consider, if not legendary, it's still something that is publicly known today. But this one is This is completely forgotten from public consciousness. I've literally never heard of this film is before. Is it 59? It is not. It's called 10. Uh. Uh, it is a 1979 romantic comedy 
uh, written and directed by Blake Edwards, starring Dudley Moore, Julie Andrews, Robert Webber, and Bo Derek. It was considered a trend-setting film at the time of its release, uh, and it follows a middle-aged man who becomes infatuated with a young woman who he's never met, leading to a comic chase and encounter in Mexico. It sounds like every other film in the top ten set a trend yeah. more than that one did. Well, that made $74,865,517. And yet nobody dollars. knows what it is. Uh, yeah. In sixth place, we have a fucking brilliant film, a masterpiece of a movie, also set in space. Alien. Alien. Well done. Yeah. I oversold it. <laughs> uh, Star Trek, you obviously know, is fifth. Yep. So Star Trek, I got that one right. Yeah, I'm going to give you that. Yay. Uh, in fourth place. Also, just to put into perspective how much more Star Trek gross than Alien. Uh, so Alien had a budget of 11 million. So much smaller budget. And made it's a quarter. Yeah. And made 184.7 million. Star Trek had 44 million and made 139 million. So actually Alien made a lot more money. Oh, hang on. Because it had... Oh, a... hang on. I'm reading the wrong column. That's what Aliens made over its lifetime. I was going to say. At that year, it made two million less. Than Star Trek. Than Star Trek. But it cost... Over its lifetime, it's made more. Yeah, but... From, okay. like, resales So it made things. two million less, but it but cost... it cost a quarter of the budget. Yeah, it cost 33 million less to make. Yeah. So it's a, a more profitable But remember, film. Rory, no one wants to watch female-led movies, apparently. Well, n- n- yeah. Sigourney Weaver knows that ain't true. Plus, whenever you put a woman in it, it's woke, so... Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. All right, in fourth place, uh, this movie... Oh, there's a hint I can give you, but it makes it too obvious. So, for now, I'm just going to say, what do you think the fourth highest-grossing movie of 1979 was? Very famous movie, uh, very much in pop culture, and there's been multiple cuts released of it. Blade Runner? Is there any hint to genre? Orton Towers. How did you get Orton Towers from Ride of the Valkyries? Because that song was played for adverts for Orton Towers in the early 90s. No, it wasn't. That's a different song. I know which song you're thinking of. Uh, it's not Ride of the Valkyries. Oh, it's all classical old shit. Anyway, Ride of the Valkyries gives it away. You should know it by now. It's one of the most famous pieces of music in film history. The Dam Breakers? Dam Busters? The answer is Apocalypse Now. Never seen it. Yeah, but you know... I I knew Ride of the Valkyries before I saw Apocalypse Now. Yeah, I know the song, but I don't know the film. They say it in Friends. When Monica... Joe and Monica gets cornrows, and she's trying to seduce Chandler, and she's waving him on on his chest, and she's going, na, 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 na. And he goes, what are you doing? And she, she says it's something else, and he goes, no, it's Ride of the Valkyries from Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Okay, up next, in third place... Oh, sorry, Apocalypse Now made 83,471,000, so about one and a half million more than Star Trek in. Okay. In third place, it's a sequel to an, to an Oscar-winning movie that had come out, <laughs> I think, Citizen Kane the year before. Rides again. No, no, it was another film that came out in the 70s. Right. And it launched the career of an actor who is still going today. I have no idea. It is Rocky 2. Rocky Part 2. That's not a sports movie. That's a boxing movie. Boxing's a sport. It's a fighting game. It's not a game. It's, it's a, a sport. It's a game. It's, a, you don't, it's not a real fight. It's a game. I think you're confusing wrestling with boxing. No. But anyway. Uh, Rocky 2 made... What's, okay, what's the difference in terms of boxing being a sport versus martial arts? Martial arts are a sport. So martial arts movies are sports films? Yeah. All right. Well, no, 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 no. So <laughs> it depends what you mean here. Karate Kid is a sports movie because it's about a martial arts tournament. So Mortal Kombat's a sports movie? Technically, yes, except <laughs> there's magic in it, so it's also a fantasy thing, isn't it? Fantasy sports. Anywho, in second place, yes, this is a rare, very rare, this doesn't happen often, the second highest grossing movie of 1979 is a horror movie. And I don't mean Halloween. And I don't mean kind of a horror movie tinged with another genre. It's Halloween. No, hang on. I mean it's an outright horror movie, and Halloween's nineteen seventy-eight, so shut your damn mouth. And it's based <laughs> on a true story. Texas in Chainsaw air quotes. Texas Chainsaw that swept the nation. The book that it's based on was like a bestseller. Texas Chainsaw. It's got Master. Thanos's dad in it. No, it's not Texas Chainsaw. Master. That's early seventies. The tagline was, for God's sake, get out. Mama's house? 
It's the Amityville Horror. Oh, I've never seen it. It's garbage. Don't watch it. It's so shit. Right. The fact that it, the fact that it became such a cultural phenomenon is one of the most embarrassing things in American history. Because <laughs> it's what it's one of the hauntings <clears throat> that is and it was so... the second highest grossing of that year, and it's garbage. Yeah. yeah. Is, I mean, having said that, we've just done Star It's because it was based on a true story. Right. Oh, did you want to know how much it made, by the way? Yeah, yeah, do that first. 86,432,000, so only 4 million more than Star Trek. Wow. So, hang on, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. So, from 2 to 6, they're all in the 80 million range. Okay, highest grossing film of 1979. Okay unusually especially for these days because these days it's always a sequel or a remake and it's usually a superhero film yep this is an original ip Mm -hmm. no sequels to it as far as i'm aware it's a standalone film it's a drama yep straight drama and i believe it was the first film of a very big actress um is it got robert de niro in it it has not They're both very respected actors. I think they've both won Oscars multiple times. Who's Oscar? And famously hated each other on this film. Is this The Shining? It's not. That's 1980. You're a year too soon. Mark. Thelma and Louise. You're way too early. (laughs) It is Kramer versus Kramer, which is a a divorce. It's a legal. It's a legal divorce drama starring Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep. That made, listen to this for a jump, so second place, Amityville Horror, was 86,432,000. And a lot of them were in the 80 million bracket. This was $106,260,000. What film was it again? Kramer versus Kramer. I've never seen it. Um, It tells the story of a couple's divorce and the impact it has on their young son. Right. Um, I'll be it honest. It's a straight drama, I believe. Apparently, it does. Have, apparently, it is a lot of it is about gender roles, fathers' rights, and work-life balance. It might be interesting to watch. It might some be. Point. Inter- it sounds good. I mean, they're both good actors. I'm going to be Mar- honest. I always, I don't know why, unless there was a, maybe a remake of it. But when I think of Kramer versus Kramer, and I think it is a much more modern adaptation if it exists, or I haven't made it up in my head, I'm fairly certain it was two, I think, Indian actors? That's why I'm confused. Anyway, that's the end of the quiz show uh, for this week, and we'll be right back to talk about Star Trek, right after these words from our sponsors. And we're back. Okay, Star Trek, Star Trek, the motion picture. Added to the list by Rory Jocelyn here. Uh, Star Trek is one of, if not uh, Rory's favourite franchise, media franchise in the world. Big fan, big, big Trekkie. It is an incredible series. Um, What made you want to talk about this film? Um, So, basically, it's... If we were going to start off with Star Trek... Unlike Doctor Who, because we did cover a Doctor Who previously, um, but unlike Doctor Who where that was basically a made-for-TV movie that also got a cinema release, Star Trek has, what, 13 now? Actual made-for-cinema release movies. Probably the most successful case of a TV show also being a movie franchise. Yeah, yeah. Um, It transferred over well, but I think a lot of its positivity is from the original series movies. But before we could get to what made them work really well, uh, which started in Wrath of Khan, really, we may as well have talked about what started it. You know, especially because wasn't it this year that there's been a new director's cut release of this film? Yes, so I've got... That's the one I've got. Um, So... Basically, the director's cut isn't any different from the one that was released in the early 2000s on DVD, except for that director's cut, and it was it was done by um, Robert Wise, because obviously he was still alive back then, he's not anymore. No, he died in 2005. Yeah, um, so they, they got his blessing and did that director's cut, but they rendered all the CGI and everything they needed for the additional shots on computers back then, and then I think they lost the files. Okay. So... All, when they re-released it on Blu-ray in like late 2000s, they could only re-release it as the theatrical cut because the director's cut edition was standard def only. Uh, and in order to basically get it done again and to try and draw people towards Paramount+, Plus, they've remastered the entire movie. It looks amazing, by the way, in terms of the, the clarity of what they've done. Um, but they basically rebuilt the CGI elements for from the director's cut to redo the director's cut, but they had to do those elements from scratch. 
So, yeah, and uh, it looks incredible. Um, but, yeah, the biggest issue with this film has always been its pacing. And so before we get on to... I, it's, I think Wrath of Khan is a film that is one of the greatest cinema movies. And it's it's rare because it's one of those where it doesn't matter if you like Star Trek or not. It's a great film. This is kind of... I like this film, but I only really like this film because it's Star Trek. Whereas... So like, if someone doesn't like Star Trek, this will not convince them to show anything any interest in Star in fact they'll be they'll have turned Actively it off. Actively turned off. Yeah. yeah. Um they'll just be like, this is wafty bollocks, you're all pretentious. And that is something that Star Trek has had thrown at it a few times, even from next gen. In fact certainly from next gen where there's a lot of it is Picard making strong speeches. Now I love that and actually a lot of fans now do love that element of it. But it was considered a bit pretentious. You've got a a British man coming over and telling you exactly what's what morally. A British man playing a Frenchman. Yes. <laughs> telling without you an what's accent. What. But then when he did the accent, he did, he actually did end up affecting an accent for Picard in one episode of the series Picard in season one. Right. Shit. Oh, really? His French accent. It literally, like, imagine... Oh, so, so. Yeah, imagine the worst stereotype. Sacre bleu. That's all he does. He goes, I am French, how you do it? And you're oh, like, Patrick. You're like, Patrick, no... Don't like just just don't do it, mate. Like just pre- just pretend to be a British pirate. No one needed you to be a French pirate. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's so it's a series that sometimes gets called on being pretentious. And to be fair, of all the movies, most of the movies aren't pretentious, but this one so is. Now there is things about this film that I really like. Um, a lot of the visual design, and I, I, by visual design, I mean the s- design of the sp- of the Enterprise itself, the remaster of it, it like the rebuild, is amazing. It's my favourite of the Star Trek ships. Um, the s- visual effects in terms of the interior of Vija and things like that, I think are beyond incredible. And I've actually got several of the um, working drawings, like the, the concept arts, that were designed by Sid Mead. Now, Sid Mead is kind of inf- famous in film. He did this. He did Aliens. He'd done uh, Elysium. He did a lot of concept art for a load of different films. Some of which in this book weren't actually released, but they look really fascinating. Um, and his artworks for this almost completely... To be fair to the visual effects team, they basically took his concepts and made them real. Like, usually you go, well, here's the concept design. It's all kind of spirographs and all this stuff. Yeah, we'll, like, build a ship or something and it will look a bit like it, but it doesn't really. This, it looks exactly like his artworks. It's really it's really quite trippy. It's really geometric in form. It's beautiful. However, the interiors of the Enterprise... Oh, my God. And the costume so design... They're so dull. Boring as fuck. Why is everything a shitty pastel colour? Yeah, it's all beige. Everything's beige and grey or like this weird muddy brown. Yeah, I think the only pop of colour you get is there's a couple of muted oranges and certainly in the costume department, there's muted blues. They're all muted. Oh yeah, I mean, what and what do we think that was? Was it that they thought that the classic costumes looked too cheap, too childish? I think what it was was when they released the original series, color TV was just coming in, so one of the so and they they had to work around that. So they gave them very colorful costumes, so that if you watched it in black and white, whatever. But when you watched it in color, it's like, oh wow, it's like a whole new world of bright colors. Well, even the bridge, the bridge is so colorful in original Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. But in this one, I think they were like, well, this is... I think it's, it's the pretension. Adult. Yeah, it, this is it's the pretension. Well, that was a TV series. This is a motion picture. Oh. Uh, so, a motion picture. And you know what's annoying is... One thing that I hate in the newer Star Trek films, like the, the Abrams trilogy, is certainly the bridge looks awful in those films. Oh, really? Really shite. It looks... Basically, and, and to be fair, they followed the brief that they were given by the director... I want it to look like the Apple Store. Oh no! Yeah, and trust me, they get that down pat. It's oh, garish. It's like bland. the new Tardis. Yeah, to the point where, for some reason, 
on the front of the bridge, you know the navigation console, on each side, you know you get them scanners at supermarkets that start... Barcode scanners. Barcode sc- They've got two barcode scanners. Fuck me. It's literally, I'm like... Why it's not really an Apple store? You don't need barcode scanners. Like, what the fuck is this? Um, they serve no purpose. They do nothing. They're just there because it's oh, it's at the bottom red. Just tangent. I yeah. hate that new Tardis. I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying not to be a hater. I'm trying to go into the new Disney era of Doctor Who with an open mind. Yeah. But I hate the new Tardis. If it's going minimalist, isn't it? That's yeah. the problem. Everyone's really happy because it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. I don't care. There's nothing in it. Yeah. Like, I'd rather it be tiny and packed with character. It's got that um, Elder Scrolls Oblivion problem that we were talking about. It's like, the largest world map in a video game ever built. And you're like, but it's empty. Yeah, there's fuck all to do in it. Make it smaller and And, put more things in it. And like you said, it's that Apple store look. And this isn't just Doctor Who, it's not just Star Trek. It's been a trend in science fiction for about 15, 20 years now. I agree. And I hate it. It looks awful. It's so dumb. Doll. Yeah. Of course, I say that as someone who hates Apple, so... Yeah, yeah, but... Maybe we should be careful, because Apple sponsor a lot of our shows. But my point is this, right? Like, even if you like that design, the f- when... If you're trying to make a sci-fi, and you walk in and you go, right, I want to make a sci-fi show, like, super far in the future, like, through two, three hundred years in the future, or some mystical alien presence, mm. make it look like the Apple Store. Mm. You failed immediately at yeah. design. Because it's like, sorry, that exists... On Earth. That exists in the mall down the road. Yeah, I can that's, actually go there now. I can walk in there, mate. Like, that's not... That's not going to whisk me away to a, a magical new world. Star Trek's interiors, like, in the Enterprise interiors in this have that problem. Some of them don't. Engineering looks really good. Um, the... Corridors are lit well. The, in the bit f- with the blue corridor. That now I like it. I like it. Yeah. But it doesn't fit the rest of the ship. No. And it looks like someone saw 2001: A Space Odyssey and went, "Yes." I mean, you can see that in a lot of these designs. Uh, there's the costume design for the um, space suits, and I'm, I'm almost certain they're just stolen from 2001. Borrowed. If, okay, sure. <laughs> um, if not, then they've been designed very much to look like the ones in 2001: A Space Odyssey, and they even do that thing in the helmet when um, Spock is boosting his way into Vija, and you see the visual effects fl- going around the sphere, spherical yeah. nature of his helmet, which is a really cool effect but it was but, already done in 2001 yeah um but again the main issue that this film has like amongst all of that i mean like bland costume design bland interior sets you can get around them don't get me wrong i prefer that they wasn't a problem but fine that someone has come up with an aesthetic that's what they want to go with what you can't get around is the fact that it takes, I think, was it 45 minutes before the... Before the, the Enterprise leaves the station. Yeah. yeah. And they're sitting there going, there's this imminent threat. It's on its way. We're going to die in I literally full, two I think days. It was, I think it's a full 25 minutes before they even get on the Enterprise. Yeah, and about and five 45 s- minutes before it leaves the station. Yeah, and I think it's five to seven minutes of that is just the flyover. Yeah. And then you've got... In excruciating detail. Yeah, and I understand this is meant to be like a throwback to traditional... Uh, sort of but early 1900s cinema. Well, it's the guy who made uh, Thingy Majiggy, um, Sound of Music. Yeah. And edited Citizen Kane. Yeah. But I know it's meant to be a bit of a throwback, but right at the beginning, there's a whole song that plays over a Starfield. That's not the credits. You just play and listen to that song. And it's a beautiful piece. It's Jerry Goldsmith. It is incredible as a piece of music. But it basically delays your film starting yeah. by like four or five minutes. Yeah, and then it does it again because then it, it go, fades to black and then and it cuts to the a credits. new Starfield with the credits. Yeah. There's actually a name for that. I can't remember it. Bullshit. No, 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 no. It's an old theatrical term. Intermission? Overture. Oh, Overture. yes. Overture. Yeah. That's it. Bloody yeah. hell. I can't believe I forgot the word overture. Yeah. So I, I, I appreciate they're going for this throwback. And... I guess I see what they were doing because they were kind of, I think, trying to go, well, Star Wars has just come out and Star Wars is a huge hit, but, you know, we're more intelligent than them. There's a lot of pretension. We're we're going to position ourselves as the more intelligent version Mm. to Star Wars as popcorn, fucking lightsabers in space battles. 
And that's fine. That's a fine goal to aim for, because let's be honest, we wouldn't have liked this if it was just imitating Star Wars. I mean, there's a lot of films that imitated Star Wars and all failed. Yeah. So, you know, you know and you know what? The storyline that they do present towards the end is smarter than Star Wars. It's more interesting than Star Wars. But you're already turned off by the time it arrives. My, my biggest problem with this is the bad art design, but also this film had $44 million spent on it, and despite that spend, it does not break free of its TV show origins. And what I mean by that is this does not need to be a movie. This feels like it's a two-parter, two episodes shoved together, that didn't need to be two episodes. There's only enough story for one episode. Yeah. There's only about 40 to 50 minutes worth of story in this. Yeah, if you remove the crew getting back together, I mean, how long does it take before Spock comes on board? Full they, out, it's nearly a full hour I in. I think that's about an hour in. Yeah. So if, in, if you remove that, that's an hour gone. You've, already, you've only got an hour and 15 minutes left. Some of that is the... Well, we'll get to that. So much of this bits. is padding. Yeah. Like you said, seven full minutes of just like flying over the Enterprise yeah. so we can study the model in detail. And yeah. don't get me wrong, there are nerds who would enjoy that. I mean, it is a gorgeous piece Star of art. Star Trek nerds and people who are like into model making and stuff like that. Yeah. Don't need it in the movie. Well, you know what? Not seven goddamn minutes. Do you want to hear an irony? Go on. If the you same... tell me that's shorter than the original cut. I don't know that. Uh, <laughs> At but... one point, it no, was no, no. a full 20 minutes. No, the irony is all the same shots for that Star Trek fly... Starship flyover, pretty much, are reused in Wrath of Khan. Really? But he, but uh, Nicholas Meyer had the good sense to go, okay, they need to see the Starship. They need to see uh, the beauty of it and the gravitas. We don't need it for seven minutes. He trimmed that down. But a lot of those flyover shots are the same shots. Right, because he, save money. Yeah, because again, it's like, well, we need to introduce the ship. We've already got the beautiful shots. We don't need that much time of it. We'll just trim it down. And you know what? I don't watch Wrath of Khan and go, did we see enough of the ship in this? You know, you you more than see enough of the ship in this. Yeah. You know? So, I, I mean, it helps as well that actually, to be fair, in Wrath of Khan, you see more of the ship after it leaves Space Dock than you do in this film. The ship is kind of... In Wrath of Khan, the ship is taking the beat-ins and doing half the work with the t- with the crew. It becomes almost a character of in and of itself. Yeah. Whereas in this, it's really kind of just a... It is just a vessel for them to travel in. Um, it doesn't feel like the Enterprise is an integral character. They could have been on any ship. Yeah. The, Enter- the Enterprise doesn't make it... Yeah, it doesn't... Because it, it doesn't look like the Enterprise from the show. No. Um, you have that handy line, don't you? Well, so much has been changed on the ship. It's basically a whole new Enterprise anyway. Then yeah. why are we bothering to do it? Yeah. You're doing it purely because you want the name Enterprise in there. Yeah. Fine, call it the Enterprise 2 or something if you want. And here's the thing. All of this setup is to... And let's let's talk about the, the, the actor who should not be named. Um, he plays a character called Will Decker. Yeah. Who is the captain of the Enterprise. Uh, bear in mind that... Prior was... to William Shatner taking it over. Well, yeah, cause, because Kirk is meant to be an admiral and he's not he's meant to be desk bound but because of the danger of the mission kirk really pushed to get the enterprise back and he does that and it upsets will um decker now part of the problem with this is that the characters most of the characters don't really have an arc they don't really there's not a lot of emotion until towards the later end and even that's again like the color palette quite muted um but Will Decker actually has the potential for a really good backstory and a really good gripe and almost fatherly connection with Kirk. Because the reason his surname is Decker, and it's not mentioned explicitly in the film, but the whole reason for them doing that was because he was meant to be the son of Commodore Decker from the original series. In an episode called The Doomsday Machine, one of my favourite episodes of that series... Uh, who's a man who loses his entire crew to the Doomsday Machine and goes a bit nuts, but he dies a hero. And it was like, well, it was... Look, and in that episode, Spock says to Kirk, um, my condolences on the death of your friend. It is regrettable. Um, so clearly he was meant to be known to Kirk, something of a friend of Kirk's. And then in this, you've got his son that's not mentioned it's like that would have been really good like Decker even mentions that Kirk is the one who pushed for Decker to get the Enterprise so you're like well you've already padded in bits there where like there is some overview capitalize on it 
have him be like, I thought you were being like a father figure to me. Now you've taken my command. Have like there are again the very brief flashes we get of that are interesting, but realistically, in order to get the most out of it, you have to read behind the scenes. And let's be honest, that's a failing on the film's part because the film should be able to give you that information. Let's be honest, it's not like it doesn't have the fucking time. You know? <laughs> it's, it's not like, well, we have to get to the next sequence as fast as possible. This is a film that labours on bullshit. The entire first half of this movie is so slow. And it's not that I, it's not that I'm against slow movies. I quite like slow burns. Yeah. But this isn't a slow burn. It doesn't feel like it's burning to anything. If it takes 45 minutes to start the journey, mm. your act one is way too long. Yeah, you started the film at the wrong place. Yeah. And again, um, like some of some of the stuff like Spock joining later didn't add anything to the story. Um in, uh, so Another couple of elements. We've complained about stuff that happens in the first hour, right? Yeah, because I want to get the rest of my negatives out first and right, then move on to go, positives. Yeah. So, why the fuck is the bridge lit so darkly? Because it looks it's shit when it's well so lit. so dark. Well, you see it well lit at first, and it's so beige, it's boring. Yeah. And the only thing that makes it look interesting in later scenes is when they're in Vija, and you have certain different lights reflecting colors. through, yeah. The best lighting is but when it's attacking... that fucking designed it wrong. Oh, no. The best lighting in the bridge is when, when Vija is attacking them with the green lightning. Yeah. So you get the green tinted light through the windows. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, that's good. And we, we have to take a moment, a pause for the cause, to talk about this ridiculous sailor outfit that William <laughs> Shatner is wearing for half of this goddamn movie. Yeah. It is a, it's a white Starfleet uniform that is short-sleeved. Very short-sleeved. And it's basically a polo shirt that's had the Star Trek insignia added to it. Yeah. It looks like a captain on one of those like elderly leisure cruisers yeah. where people play like backgammon and shuffleboard. In the middle of summer as well because it's not got the full suit on because yeah. it's too hot. Yeah, I swear to God, he doesn't. He doesn't have to do anything. He's got full-length trousers on, but I keep picturing him in shorts because he looks like shorts. <laughs> Meanwhile, cooler but still makes no sense... Fucking DeForest Kelly's walking around dressed like fucking an extra from Saturday Night Fever. He looks amazing. He in looks this amazing, film. but it doesn't fit the film. No, he, he looks like Disco Stew. Yeah, he's got a giant <laughs> collar on this outfit. Yeah, and and the chest is like open down to like just below his pecs. Some of them he's got a medallion all... as well, hasn't he? Yeah, and you could just <laughs> see like his chest bush. <laughs> For a minute there, I thought I was watching Austin Powers in Goldmember. Yeah, it looks incredible. It is amazing. I thought he was going to beat uh, Vija by seducing him with his mojo. <laughs> Just dance off against Vija. Um, film. But yeah, it would have been. So, should we talk? I'll, first I'll, of all, have you got any more negatives about the first half? Because I, I don't want the whole episode to turn into negatives. I want one so more. Let's get the negatives I wanna, out. First. I want to get one more negative out because I actually have a lot of positives about the second half. Yeah, yeah, me too. So the one other negative I'd say is it's taken us 45 minutes to get going, an hour to get Spock. We then start the, I think, no, just, just before we get Spock, actually, this bit. They jump to warp. Something, quote unquote, goes wrong. This never makes any sense. Oh, it's just there. Yeah, this, this bit that's been added clearly to add some false excitement to the film. Yeah, they hit, they somehow hit a wormhole. And as they fly through, the, there's like a warping effect on their face. And their voices have like this metallic texture added to it, and which then, then slow down, they get slower and so. Mister you're like for fuck, like that's really pretentious. And then there's a it's not uh, pretentious, it's just a bad effect. It's just terrible. And then there's uh, a, an asteroid that's inside the wormhole that they have to destroy before mm. they move forwards. Um, which they then blow up, and somehow blowing up the asteroid ends the wormhole. Yeah, was the asteroid causing the wormhole? Yeah, like, I didn't think asteroids is created it a wormholes. sentient asteroid it's, with magic powers? If it is sentient, then they've just killed a life form. Uh, so it's very weird. It makes no sense. It's just literally stuffed in there. It slows the pace to a crawl, because they don't get anywhere near closer. They don't learn anything from this experience. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> Technically, you could say that it's the idea that Kirk was going to open phasers on the asteroid, and com uh, Captain Decker basically says, "Don't fire the phasers. You shoot a photon torpedo, which works." And then afterwards, when he gets grilled by Kirk, he's like, 
on this design, the phasers go through the warp core. So if you'd fired the phasers, we'd have been obliterated, right? That's the only learning core. But you could have done that a different way without all this shit. Yeah, because um, what what impact does that have on the entire rest of the film? Oh, it doesn't impact anything phases else. Phases go through the warp core. Doesn't do anything. Nothing. No. It's like at the beginning, there's a great bit where, and I love this idea, but it doesn't go anywhere. Um, when Kirk beams up to the Enterprise, he then has his science officer, who's another Klingon, uh, another Klingon, another Vulcan, is beaming up, and the transporter files. And he goes, yeah, what causes that? It, it's never explained. It's just an fault. And uh, so basically, so you're telling me the transporter works perfectly in what sixty something episodes of the original series, and then it fails. But as soon as we do a film, it fails for no apparent reason. Yeah, and I think that was just so that they could kill someone to put Spock in a role that, but they didn't need to do that. Here's the thing: I love the idea that that horror moment where they try and beam them through, it gets like it's like they switch off the beam, it goes back to Earth, and he goes, uh, and he says, Starfleet, have you got them? He goes. Uh, what, what arrived back, didn't, didn't live long. Yeah, didn't live long, and thank God for that, or something like that. Basically, but thankfully, didn't live long, and it's just like that moment. You're like, damn, that's dark. Yeah. That would have been useful if that came up somewhere. This is clearly the wrong episode for that, to, or the wrong fi- I say episode, but that was clearly intended for another episode of a, a of this new series. Uh, that to didn't be fair, pay off later. Probably doesn't pay off. Probably you don't see it because they wanted to keep the rating low, I think. Um, but I don't even need that to see... should be a monstrosity. Yeah, but here's the thing. I would even go with not showing what came back. I know that that would be your preference. But if you're going to put it in the story, give it a reason? Like, it doesn't have a reason. It's false drama, isn't it? Yeah. But it is... I mean, look how easily we're splitting the movie in two to talk about it. Yeah. It's very clearly two episodes smushed together. Yeah. But they only had enough plot for one episode. Yeah. So the entire first episode is all filler. Yeah. Because you don't need this bit. You don't need the um, asteroid chase through the wormhole. Nope. To be honest, you don't need the cold open with the Klingons getting attacked. I mean, I that's, don't mind that so much, but yeah, I see your point. That's just been stuck in for, oh, there's not a lot of action in this film, so let's put an action sequence right it's at the beginning. T- it's the only time you see the Klingons at all. Yeah, which, if you're going to go to the effort of redesigning the Klingons and then they're not in the rest of the film, <laughs> for you to explain why they look different, why have you done that? I don't know. Anyway, so for me, I think the point where the film takes its turn mm. is once um, Baldy McBalderson gets kidnapped, what's her name? What, the actress or the character? The character. Ilea. Ilea. Yeah, played uh, by Persis Kembata. Yeah. Who was uh, Miss India, uh, f- and she was also in Miss Universe 1965. Oh, wow. And then she became a model for companies such as Revlon. And then ended up in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah, biggest acting break was Lieutenant Ilea in The Motion Picture. Okay. Um, she gets zapped away for a bit. And for me, the bit where the film picks up is when she gets brought back and they find her, return to the ship, but she's sort of been, like, possessed by Vega. Uh, we, should, we should say, for anyone who doesn't know, basically the rough plot of this film is there's this giant fucking supernova-sized cloud called Vega, yep. and it wipes out some Klingons, and they pick it up on Earth sensors... Uh, in San Francisco, the spaceport is, isn't it? Because you see the Golden Gate Bridge. Yes, that's still standing all those years later. I mean, that's uh, that's that because of this film that became a staple. Whenever you see Starfleet Command, you see on San Francisco. You see you the see Golden Sa- Gate Bridge. Yeah, it's it's legitimately set in San Francisco. Oh, fantastic! Following this film, so they send this. They send the Enterprise to find out what this giant cloud is because it's on its way to Earth. The cloud is called Vija. Uh, Aaliyah has been sort of possessed or taken control of by Vija. And this is the first part of the film where you start to get shades of something interesting because she keeps referring to Enterprise as if it's a living entity. And they are parasites. And the people are parasites living on it. The carbon yeah. units, as she calls them. Yes. Um, they that... infest Enterprise. Yeah. And that's yeah. the first bit, and now we're into the movie. Longer than that. About an hour 10, an hour 15 into the movie, I was like, oh, hang on, we've got something here. (laughs) Something's starting to happen. (laughs) This is also the bit where the lighting starts to change because a lot of sequences are now within Vija. Yeah. So you're getting kind of psychedelic 
blues, greens, lots of shapes. There's lots of stars and triangles and things like that. What's quite good about Sid Mead's design of the inside of Vija is because it's meant to be like uh, a, a basically a mechanism trying to find existence and meaning. There's a lot of geometry. It's all geometric. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, this I know they want to show it off, but this is held a little too long. The oh yeah, shots of the Enterprise flying through Vija goes on for that's about a five minute sequence. Oh yeah, that, and uh, this is where people start saying like uh, a lot of this film is just people staring at a view screen. It's like watching someone watch a TV. Yeah, is like these are gorgeous shots going through Vija, but there are way too many of them. Yeah, um, you needed a pe- maybe a sequence like this, and then like, a few extras here and there just to show uh, a general point of motion. But they do this about two or three times that they're just sitting there staring at a screen as things happen that don't involve them. They're just on the ship. Um, and Aaliyah, controlled by Vija, keeps asking to meet the creator. And they're still on the way to Earth at this point. And eventually reveals that she will... Basically, Vija plans on killing all the carbon units, um, assimilating them into data packets... And Spock, this one of the better sequences in the film, is Spock, without permission from Kirk, decides to don a spacesuit and go for a, a little fly. He decides he wants to go and connect to Vija himself directly. Yes, because Vija has been sort of reaching out to Spock through the Vulcan mental thing. Yeah, like that's never fully explained. Him. It never explains why he's the only Vulcan that gets yeah, it Yeah, I well. thought Vulcans had to touch you to hit, because don't they have to do the mind meld? Uh, to be fair, in the original series, there's an episode um, called the Immunity Syndrome, where there's another starship that's all Vulcans that gets destroyed by this huge space amoeba. It's actually a good episode. It sounds silly when I say it that way. but Well, you say space amoeba. <laughs> yes. But, but I think that, I remember that one. I think it is a pretty good one. It is one. a good episode. A single-celled organism that's going to basically destroy the universe because we're the, we're the uh, infestation in its body. So it's a similar thing to this divides. in a way. Yeah, uh, when it's about to cell divide, yeah. Um, but in that episode, this, the Vulcan starship gets destroyed and Spock has like this weird reaction and then he goes to sickbed and it's just like, it's like hearing a thousand screams over space. Um, in a way that only like, and he's like I thought you had to physically touch a vault, uh, someone to be in contact with them, and he says he has a line that says uh, that's something I always find ironic about you humans is how cold your existence is. Even me, a half Vulcan, could hear the death cry of a thousand Vulcans from so however many miles away. So there is a suggestion that he has almost a low level telepathy. Yeah, but it's it it's always incredibly vague, and I'll be honest, most other Vulcans and other series don't really deal with that past the Vulcan mind meld bit because it's a bit bollocks. Right, fair enough. <laughs> Plus, when they introduced Betazoids in Next Generation, you they kind of filled that space anyway, so yeah. you didn't need Vulcans to do it. Yeah. So he dons a spacesuit and he flies into Vija, and this is where you get to see, I think this is the first time you see the big star shape that is like the centre of Vija that he flies big through. Sphincter, yeah. Um, it kind of <laughs> looks like the aperture of a camera, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you said um, camera. Yeah. And he sort of gets these flashes of images from Vija, doesn't he? That yeah. sort of knocks him unconscious sort of thing. But luckily, Kirk rescues him. And this is where Spock sort of says to Kirk that all Vija wants is to be able to... Basically, Vija's got a near infinite amount of knowledge, but it can't do something as simple as touch. Yeah. And f- just feel like holding someone's hand. Yeah, it has no emotion, it has no ability to yeah. actually connect to anything. But it's seeking to understand that because it's evolved as far as it can. Yeah, as a as what as you what imagine. it is. Yeah. And at this point, we know it's mechanical of some kind. We don't know what yeah. yet, but we've seen enough with Spock that we know it's mechanical of some kind. Yeah, and that all the, the, all the things we're seeing as the Enterprise seem to be generated almost like large-scale-generated holograms of its entire journey through the through the universe to get from wherever it got to to wherever it's like to where it's going. Yeah, and it keeps saying it's trying to contact its creators, but the creators aren't replying. Um, and Kirk ends up bluffing and saying, oh, we know who the creators are, just don't kill everyone on the Enterprise, mm. and we'll tell you. 
So Vijia agrees not to kill everyone on the Enterprise, and it takes Kirk, uh, Bones, Spock, Decker, Decker, and then obviously Aaliyah is controlled by Vega. Yeah, she's, yeah. Um, Vija. They leave the Enterprise and they walk along. I thought this was quite a cool little effect. Mm. It's basically an infinite black void of space with... It almost looks a bit like... like hexagonal patterns, aren't they? Yeah. It reminded me of... I'm actually, I'm actually playing Control at the minute on my computer. And when you go to the astral plane in Control... The floor is made up of like these blocks that sort of grow up out of the floor. Yeah. And are in weird patterns. And it reminded me of that a bit. And they followed that to essentially a crater. But when they get there, the crater the crater is actually like a, me- a metal crater. It's all machinery and stuff. And they're sitting in the middle of this crater is the Earth space probe Voyager 6. Yes. And the o- that's such a cool reveal. I have to say, I yeah. love that reveal. The O, Y, and the A have been covered up with dirt. Yeah. So Vija thinks its name is Vija, not Voyager. Yeah. Um, it's a very good twist, and once you've heard it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and basically they say, oh, Voyager 6, you know, it fell through a black hole 300 years ago. They theorize it must have come out on the other side of the galaxy and found a mechanical species who, like, fixed it up. Yeah. And sent it... They built this entire metal planet to carry Vija back home. So it could fulfil its objective. But as Vija's gotten closer to Earth and it's learnt more things, it can't communicate with anyone on Earth because Earth... 300 years have gone by, Earth technology has moved on, and they're no longer capable of picking up Vija's transmissions. Yeah. What we then start, and this way it gets a little dicey, is we then find out that Vija has gained enough intelligence, even though we've just said it doesn't have any emotions or anything like that, it clearly has wants and desires, because we get told that Vija has consciously cut its own transmission wire, despite having no arms, has cut mm. its own transmission can't wire. its own nameplate. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in order to force the humans to come to it yes because it's not enough for it to just make contact with its creator it wants to merge it with wants it. to meet them and merge with them mm. and this is where the film makes a mistake because basically Aaliyah's obviously a puppet of Vija now and we didn't mention that Decker is her ex and all the way through the film they're giving looks of longing to each other by the way you're you're very you must be aware that Will Decker Will Riker mm. Aaliyah and uh, Deanna Troy Bear in mind that the Deltons were basically the beta version of the beta zoids. Right. Um, it's the same narrative. Right. If you think, like, Will, you've got Will and Ilya. Does, does she get controlled by Vija then? No, 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 no. Right. But I'm talking about the fact that you have this, like, he's, she's somewhat, she's slightly psychic. He right. is her previous, and he like, partner. Have powers and what Yeah, and he's a commander who's trying to get his own command. Right. And so they split up, and now they've met again on this mission. Is the same narrative okay. on that sense as what happens with Will Riker right. and Deanna Troy. Except for with Will Riker and Deanna Troy, it actually works a lot better. Right. Um, all the way through this film, they're giving each other longing looks and constantly talking about merging. They just kind of look into each other's eyes. They do that mystical thing that was very popular turn. in the 80s. Yeah, they just dissolve into sparkles. Yeah, there's a like lot of sparkles. fucking Thanos just snapped them out of existence. Well, at first, when he starts to sparkle, you said it was like Twilight. Yeah. It's... <laughs> um, He's a twinkly boy. Anyway. Uh, they merge, and v- Vija, now having ascended to being a new life form, kind of just peacefully leaves. Yeah, he kind of evaporates and vanishes. I'm guessing moving. Spock says he basically moves to the next level of Someone evolution. Someone theorizes alternate dimensions, don't they? Something like that. It'd be uh, interesting to, you know. Have they ever bought Vija back? No. No. Um, so at the end of this film, Kirk just steals the Enterprise. Yeah, that's a I know they're going for a feel good ending. Yeah, but he it, just steals the Enterprise. Yeah, bear in mind, like obviously at the start, the whole point of this was that it's actually Captain Decker's ship. He has, and everyone tells him, including McCoy, is like, "Oh, I see, you've literally shouted at Starfleet Command and you've to forced your way, forced in. your way in. You've now got the ship." And then afterwards, it's like, "Oh, Starfleet are asking uh, for you know any injuries or whatever." And it's like only two missing, which is uh, Commander Ilya 
and Captain Decker. Right, let's get going, chaps. As I, I think somebody be like, um, hang on a minute, Mister Kirk. Uh, just, just, just quickie. The guy you wanted to replace is dead. Yeah. The uh, one of the only two that deaths. Is, honestly, that's as suspicious as you remember a couple. And of his girlfriend, the, the man you wanted to replace, yeah, and his ex-girlfriend are both that, dead. And Kirk hasn't even got a plan. He sits in the chair. And he goes, uh, that way. Yeah. Not oh, let's go to Mars or let's go wherever. Yeah. It's just th- that way. Pointers in that way. Doesn't stop to ask any of the crew. If they want to come on the journey, doesn't because st- Bones isn't assigned to the Enterprise officially. He's just there for that mission. No, and so is Spock. Spock. Yeah. Um, Though I, Spock does say he's happy to stay. Yeah. And isn't there a suggestion that Uhura and that lot they've just been gotten together no, for th- this mission, or no, have I, they been on the Enterprise this whole time? I think time? they've been assigned. I think it's only McCoy and Spock that weren't like properly assigned, and Kirk himself. Yeah. Though he assigned himself. The yeah. The thing is, is if you're going to go, it's like the first question is then what missions do we have? Not just go that way, whatever. It's a, it's a bad. Like it, I understand the reason for the ending, but it's done so much better in the sixth film, right? Which is when they're told to re- return to Starfleet Command to be decommissioned, and he kidnaps the fucking ship again. He does this a lot in the films, to be fair. Then right at the end, he sits down and goes, "Sir, so what should we do? What's your orders?" And he just goes, he, "And to be fair, it's a borrowed line from Peter Pan, but it works so well." He just sits there and he go, leans back and goes, second star to the right and straight on till morning. And it's like, that works. It's an artistic line. It's better than that way. <laughs> Whatever, over yeah. there. It's like, that's not, at least if you're going to do that ending, give it some whimsy. Give it, like, for such a pretentious film to end it on <laughs> whatever's over there, mate. Oh, but remember, it doesn't end, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Because we get swell of music, Starfield comes up. And then a last caption oh, comes you, up. You, you literally swore at the TV with this case. The human adventure is just beginning. <laughs> it's <laughs> so pretentious. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? The human what? adventure is just beginning. In your cheesy fucking sci-fi film <laughs> that has already wasted an hour of my time. An hour? Well, because the second hour was good. Oh, okay, fair enough. The okay, first you. hour's trash. You yeah. wasted an hour of my life, and now you're going to sit there and basically do the 1979 equivalent of sequel baiting me. <laughs> no, the it's human not. adventure is just beginning. It's not about Star Trek. It's about us as a people. <laughs> it's all bad. There's a Cold War going on at the time this comes out. Quite what? frankly, quite frankly, your message should have been, sorry, folks, you fucked it up. We're all going to die what in I... a horrible <laughs> nuclear winter. What I find funny is you were so annoyed at how boring and shit the first half was. The second half was about, but, but even though it would never have recouped what happened in the first half, it was winning you over. You got to hear, mm. oh, that's not so bad. And then suddenly that came out. Awful. It just, it just broke you completely. Awful. <laughs> it's so what a pretentious oh. fucking caption spot <laughs> at the end. It's Jesus. a very Roddenberry line. Oh. This didn't need to be a film, basically, is my overall thing of this. This this is an episode this feels like an overly long TV special. I think we're done with this film. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what's your final thoughts? Um like I said, this didn't need to be a film. Mm. If you're a hardcore Star Trek nerd, I think you'll enjoy it. But I don't think this... If you're someone looking to try Star Trek for the first time, this is not where you should start. Uh, you probably shouldn't start with Wrath of Khan either, as much as I wish you could. Um, Why not? You'd probably start with Space Seed. Um, I mean, to be honest, to be honest, you, bear in mind, I'm not a big Star Trek guy like you. I've only seen most of TOS, half of TNG... And the first two films, to be honest, you're probably best starting from TNG in terms of TV. And mm. TNG is a good starting on point, and it's not so old that it's clunky as fuck. Mm. Whereas TOS is pretty clunky at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, having said that, I think rather you could jump in on Ratha Khan. I understand that he is boosted by having prior knowledge. But you don't know what the Wrath is about. That's, but, that's your first of Khan. Yeah. The first book of Khan. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think I kind of agree. I, I, it's a shame because there are several visual elements in this that are exceptional, like the Sid Mead artworks, the space shots, 
I think, though it was weird that there's almost every single shot in order to just basically go, look how much budget we've got. They just had some random twat flying through space. Yeah, in a characters suit. who we never get referenced again. No, they have no point. They're just literally loads of people just going, wee. Yeah. I actually want to edit in. The, the wee. Sa- yeah, the wee. Whatever someone, because it happens so much, it Jamie. It does, it does. Uh, it's it where it's noticeable. You're like, why is there a guy here now? Like, why is he there? Like, being outside in a spacesuit is the most dangerous thing you can do in space. The dangerous thing you could do in life, I think. Yeah. Being in the vacuum of space yeah. in just a thin layer of material. Because you've got to remember that material has to is essentially One a tear. small starship. One tear and you're dead. Yeah. And yet you've got people just floating around doing literally nothing. What are you doing? Anyway. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it. There's a lot of really good visual elements, but I'll be honest, I don't think they make it unless you're really into Star Trek or really into uh, film artwork. In which case, you might get something out of this. Yeah, you. It would need to be completely re-edited, and that those people won't accept that. You no. know, because it's got the director's cut already, um, and you know, pe- people think it's heinous if you re-edit a film. But it is, to be honest. I don't agree with it. Yeah. But it would be fun to do just to see if you could make this more enjoyable. <laughs> because, my God, it's too long. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is our first foray into Star Trek. If you'd like to listen to more Second Take Cinema episodes, we've got the entire first season available and uh, several episodes of season two now. We release twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We also have another movie review show, VGMP, the video game movie podcast, where we focus on, surprisingly enough, westerns. No, I'm kidding. We focus on video game movies. That is both movies adapted directly from video games, such as the Super Mario Brothers movie or Silent hill or tekken things like that and we do movies that are sort of narrowly based on games such as the last starfighter or pixels things like that we also have an audio drama haunted the audio drama full cast audio drama horror adventure sort of x-files meets doctor who type thing it's a lot of fun um not super scary it's not like hardcore horror you can probably handle it even if you're someone who doesn't usually like scares it sort of never gets scarier than sort of x-files used to sort of supernatural type vibe uh until next time remember that the human adventure has only just begun